There are certain moments and words that shaped a new era in pro wrestling. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. Brett screwed Brett. Die, Rocky, die. Introducing the Book of Wrestling, 25 catchphrases that explain the Attitude Era. Tune in as we relive one of the most exciting, intense, and over-the-top times in WWE with new interviews with the voices that made the promos, calls, and catchphrases into history. Listen now. This episode of the Ringer F1 show is brought to you by eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, from superchargers and brakes to exhaust kits and beyond, eBay Motors levels your baby up to its peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride or your money back. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Welcome to the Ringer F1 Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. I'm Kevin Clark. Amazing show today. Nate Saunders joins me from London. He's at ESPN. We talk about every single angle of the F1 season so far. This week's race in Australia, and we focus on what happens if Mercedes doesn't recover from their rough start from the first two races. Really interesting conversation. We also touch on the Americanization of the sport. Uh, I put that in air quotes because the sport has been Americanized in the past. Look at the 50s and 60s when there were races where there were two Americans in Ferraris. Um, look at a guy like Phil Hill who literally won the World Drivers' Championship um, in the 50s. The fact that there were three races in America on the calendar in 1982 when there were only 16 Grand Prix in general, um, a much higher percentage than there will be next year. Uh, really interesting discussion on what the Americanization, again, in quotes, means uh, for the sport, uh, how people inside the sport are viewing it, what what sort of the drive to survive effect has been inside the paddock. Uh, really interesting discussion with Nate. And then Jody Walker from The Ringer joins me. She's written about F1 a few times on the site, mostly focusing on driver personality, some of these narratives that we've seen uh, on Netflix. Really fun, interesting discussion, um, completely different from what we talked about uh, with Nate about just sort of uh, what we want to see covered going forward from a narrative perspective. Uh, really enjoyed that with Jody. All right, let's get to Nate. All right, bringing in Nate Saunders, associate editor for F1 at ESPN. He's a Tampa Buccaneers fan, which I just learned about five <laughs> seconds ago. Nate, what's going on, man? Hey, man. Yeah, I, I like to throw that fact in for people just to just to shock them and then say I'm not a bandwagon fan either, that it's a that it's a long running thing. And then obviously Brady turned up. But no, I'm good. I I'm really appreciate you having me on. I love the show. Uh, I'm looking forward to chatting some F1. I'm so excited. So this race is so significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, what we've seen the last two weeks, but then the changes to Australia's track. And we'll get to those. I addressed those a little bit in the open as well. Um, but again, I there was a great reset 
a couple of weeks ago where I think that everything that we thought we knew about most of these teams has has turned on its head. And I want to dive into the title race, but I want to start with Mercedes and their role in it or or lack thereof. A couple of quotes over the past couple of weeks that were really interesting to me. Um, Total Wolf said, I think it was yesterday, that this to me feels a little bit like 2013 where we just weren't keeping up with the speed with the Red Bull and probably also not with the Ferraris, but we kept fighting. This is how we feel at the moment. Um, obviously, in 2013, that was Sebastian Vettel kind of lapping the field. Uh, Nico Rosberg and Lewis Hamilton had three total wins and six podiums that year. Um, I'm curious, if you're handicapping, Nate, the rest of this season, what does Mercedes look like they're almost too big to fail everybody 90 percent of people who who are tuning into this podcast here whether they're american whether they're new whatever have have really either seen mercedes as dominant or at least in the mix and maybe they started watching when red bull was on their run whatever but the mercedes to most people in, in f1 feels like it's too big to fail right now they look a little bit adrift what does this look like going forward nate yeah it's absolutely crazy really when you when you look at it like you said, for the last eight years, they've just been so dominant. And I think that every great dynasty has to end at some point, right? We've seen that throughout every sport that there's ever been. But I think most of us who have been following got used to this idea that Mercedes would out-develop their rivals, they would outrace their rivals, they would often outthink their rivals in terms of race strategy. And what this did, what this great reset with the rules did was it was exactly that. It gave the other chance the other teams a chance to uh, I guess effectively start from scratch and try and build something better than Mercedes. And I don't know. I think I don't. I, I don't quite buy that Mercedes are in as big a hole as everyone seems to think they are. I think that right now they are clearly the third best team. But Martin Brundle, obviously one of the Sky Sports pundits, said that he thinks Mercedes are one great upgrade away from joining that front pack. And what their, their car was such a radical and revolutionary design that it seems like maybe they're taking the hit right now for that design you know they've obviously got the, the bouncing issues the porpoising as everyone's calling it and it, that is really hurting them at the moment you know some people are saying it's it's costing them nearly a second a lap that's you know what, what some people are suggesting and if that is true and they can get rid of that then suddenly the i, I guess the competitive mix looks a lot different and they're right back up there so i don't know i think that the the big question for me around mercedes is how long is this going to last and how far behind the championship race are they going to be when they fix those problems. Because I'm, I'm, I'm like you, I'm still somebody who came into the season thinking, well, Mercedes has been the gold standard for so long, it's right. impossible to think they're going to drop down. And I think that it's been interesting, you know, on the, on the engine side, they've lost a few key guys who have gone to Red Bull and that new program, which always happens, you know, when one team is great, people yeah. want to take those guys, pay them more money and say, come and replicate that here. So it's going to be interesting to see. And, and Red Bull had this exact same thing happen. They, they dominated from 2010 to 2013. We had the new engine regulations, and they spent the best part of the next seven years trying to get back to the position they got to last year, where they could finally challenge Mercedes. And I think that's going to be in the back of Mercedes' head right now. They're going to think, is this going to happen to us? I'm not convinced. I think that they can close that gap, but I think they're at a position where they've got so much more to understand about their car than Red Bull and, and sorry, Red Bull and Ferrari. And I think we've really seen that so far. Um, so I'm not sure if that answered your question. I just realized I've basically... No, it does. <laughs> roundabout way of answering it but so i think that that's the main the main issue for me is is just how long does it take them to get back because i'm absolutely convinced they will be back winning races but it could be three races from now it could be before the summer break it could even be by austin they're the best team out there but we've seen before that the team that finishes the season with the quickest car isn't the one that started the season with the quickest car you know we've seen that happen before so 
um, yeah, it's it's really fascinating to see how that's going to play out from now. The guys that they stole, the Red Bull stole from Mercedes. It was funny to me because I hadn't thought about that in a while, but it was a it was a while ago that they stole them, and everybody just goes on gardening leave. For, like they have these non competes. It's like two years. It's like oh, we stole this guy from from Mercedes. Oh, he can't actually work for us until twenty twenty two. Like these guys have the longest non competes in the world. It's like media contracts. Yeah, it it it, it is funny when you see these, and it, and it happens across the grid. You know, someone leaves, and it's like hey, I'm on, I'm on gardening leave for the next eight months. And I'm like, man, I've got to get yeah. I've got to get some gardening leave like that myself um, <laughs> when I next change jobs. But um, it shows you just how how important switching team when you switch teams, just yes. how sensitive the information you take with you is. Obviously, if you switch NFL teams or Premier League teams, there's not a huge amount. It's not like you can go and say, hey, here's what they're doing over there because it's not that easy to replicate. But when you're talking about designs of cars or of engines or whatever it is, you can take that information with you. And if maybe you're one of four people that knows exactly how a concept works and you suddenly leave that team, you're very valuable. So that's kind of why those exist. And yeah, it's, it's always worth when somebody big leaves a team, like the, the numbers usually, it's bigger than one month, let's just say that. <laughs> well, it's also, it just shows you how uh, NFL scouts just can't keep their mouths shut because everybody knows everything about football. And meanwhile, yeah. like ha- Haas's, you know, Haas's advantage right now is just a closely guarded secret. It's like if NFL scouts ran F1, there would be no secrets. There'd be no need for year long gardening leaves. It'd be fine. They would get two would flights in and go, just everybody would know everything. I'd never need to go to preseason testing because they'd just be running their mouths about who's, who's calling. They'd be texting what. you. Like, they'd be texting yeah, exactly. you. Exactly. So, uh, so it's probably good for my job. That they're not in that. Uh, they're not informed on right now. But um, it's a good point. I'd never thought of that. They will. They will they, they'll get there. NFL scouts will move over. The cap guys will. Now that there's a, a, a spending cap, all the salary cap guys can come over. It'll be great. Um, I'm curious. You know, I, I was reading a Harvard Business School case study between Lewis and Max and, and Mercedes generally. And, Toto has this quote in there where he just said, and, and Lewis talks about how Toto empowered him to do things outside of the sport. And it was really interesting. Look at the relationship between the two. And Toto says, we have a pact. You perform and I create a framework for you that allows you to perform. Um, that's always been the deal with Mercedes. That's why they've been so successful. As Toto figures out the car and the money, Lewis figures out the driving. As you said, they have great strategy guys. They have great support staff. They have great health and wellness, whatever. They have advantages. I mean, it, it, it's like any other sport. The best teams have the most money. And then I think there's, I, my line on football is there's, there's you know tens of thousands of little edges that, that, that lead to a win. My guess is in Formula One, it's, it's even more. Um, when you think about the car parts and, and Mercedes having a thousand staff members and all that stuff, um, there's just so much that goes into to the Mercedes miracle over the past, let's call it eight years. They haven't gone through this kind of adversity in a long time. Even last year, it looked like they were on the upswing until the last lap um, of, of the season. And so there was at least some momentum. Is there any evidence that if they have a bad season, that this could all fall apart? Is it, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, you've, you've been in the paddock. I have not. Um, if Mercedes had this kind of, kind of situation that we're seeing right now um, throughout the rest of 2022. What happens to the team? Is there any, is, is there any kind of residual effects? It's a really good question. I think that everything will kind of start and end with what Lewis and Toto want to do. I think, I think that that as soon as those guys leave is when I think that we'll see real big changes. It was, it was never clear, you know, the last couple of years, it did seem like maybe Toto was getting ready to usher in somebody new that maybe he was, Kind of to go back to the Buccaneers doing what Bruce Arians is just telling, you know, hand over a great team. Oh, who's, the, who's the Todd Bowles of Mercedes? I uh, I was going to say James Allison, but I don't yeah. know if that's a perfect comparison. But that seems to be the guy that you would give that to, you know, someone with a technical yeah. background. Um, 
I, I love the fact that we've said that and James Allison would ha- not have the slightest clue what that means, but it, but it is a good thing to be the top balls of, of the Mercedes. Oh, we're going to we're gonna find James Allison in Miami and say, my guy, you are the Todd Bowles of Mercedes and just walk away and see what happens. <laughs> you, yeah. You're going to see the blankest look on his face. <laughs> looking back, <laughs> it. But I want to be there when you do. So, so do, do, do come grab me. Um, but yeah, I think the Lewis point you made is really interesting. I'm sure you saw this week. Lewis was skydiving before this race, yeah. which for, for a professional athlete, you know, who is racing. It's not like they're a retired athlete. You don't see that very often. You, often teams will say there's no chance you're doing anything like that. And that's a really good insight into the freedom that Lewis has to do those things away from racing. I yeah. think it's it's a mutual trust thing. Mercedes trusts him to go away and whether it's he's going to you know be at a fashion gala or he's going to go skydiving or he's going to you know be an extra in Zoolander or whatever it is, you know, he... Sorry, Zoolander 2, not Zoolander the original, obviously. Um, whatever he does, he's gonna, he's going to come to to the racetrack and he's going to be the Lewis Hamilton that we've come to know over the past few years where his level is just so high. And I think that that was really, when you look at his career, that that was one of the things at McLaren that I think he really struggled with was it was the opposite of that. You know, he never had that freedom. So I think that, I don't think Mercedes are ever going to take that away from Lewis. I don't think they're suddenly going to say, you know, we don't want that while Toto's there because I think Toto and Lewis have a really great understanding. My feeling would be that there's a lot of there's a big age gap in that team. You've got somebody like George Russell, who yes. I think is going to be with Mercedes for as long as you know they want him, and as long as he wants to stay there, um, he seems like the future of the team. Whereas for Lewis, he's said a few times, like if 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 I'm not enjoying racing, I'm not going to stay around. And I can't see him right. doing something similar to what Kimi did with Alpha or what Vettel's doing with Aston, yeah. and kind of thinking like, oh yeah, I'll just I'll, you know I'll sit around at the back of the the back end of the grid for a few years and just kind of hope. Yeah, hope I win because Lewis has so many things going on away from racing. He could step away at any time with the most incredible legacy that we've seen from a from a racing driver when you consider what he's achieved. Um, so I think that that to me is why there's this pressure on Mercedes to get it right because if you can't remedy this this year, does Lewis walk away? And if Lewis walks away, does Toto say, "Well, that's that's the good chance for me to go as well"? When you start losing pieces like Lewis, obviously the driver is not the only thing that makes the racing team win. But having Lewis, I mean, if it's a question of do you want Lewis Hamilton in the car or do you not want Lewis Hamilton in the car, I think it's pretty obvious. Even if you even if you dislike Lewis Hamilton, you know he's a, he's a very polarizing figure. Um, you undeniably would want him in the car, and I think as soon as he leaves the team, I think that's when you start to think. Well, clearly this is a team that he doesn't see winning anytime soon. And when that happens, do other people start to leave as well? Um, but I think that Mercedes have built such a such a strong, solid foundation there with both of their they have two factories in the UK. I think they're still, they, I, I call them the gold standard at the start of the podcast. And I still think they are that. I think the way they've set up a lot of other teams are trying to replicate now. And I don't think that's going to go away. I think that, that culture that Toto Wolff has instilled there should stay around. And I think that we've still seen the, the way they've handled this spell of, of losing, or not even losing, you know, finishing third out of, out of 10 right. teams. You know, it's not like, it's not like it's, it's, it's not as bad as say McLaren's situation, for example, they've been very calm about it. You know, they, they clearly want to be better. Um, but they're just taking it in their stride. And I think we've seen other teams maybe may have handled that differently. You know, they might have immediately been off the boil, immediately been blaming people. We've not seen any blame. It's just we're not where we want to be right now. We can be. And I think they've got quite a healthy mindset towards competition. And and also, I think they really do relish that competition as well. They always said, oh, we want to... Lewis was kind of mocked sometimes as saying, I do want to see Ferrari or Red Bull in the mix. But yes, I think for a team like Mercedes, like they need that. And this competition, I think, is going to drive them on. So, yeah. I mean, and by the way, it's a it's a great point you're making. This is not McLaren right now. Mercedes is literally second in the constructors championship because obviously yeah. both Red Bulls didn't finish the race um, in Bahrain. So 
I, it's just that they haven't, you know, Lewis has finished third and fifth. Russell has been fourth and 10th. They haven't won a race. They haven't really looked like they were going to win a race. Lewis went out in Q1 last week. I mean, that's it. We're reading the tea leaves here. It's not they're not finishing P18 here. OK, so <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. that, that, that 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 is one sort of thing to to, to qualify here. Um, you mentioned the Ferrari and the Red Bull thing, and and Lewis has been. It reminds me a little bit of, and, and this is something we we've talked about on this pod before. But like, it, it, you know, Ferrari, it almost reminds me a little bit of like Notre Dame, or you know, even like Ur- Urban Meyer when he was the Florida coach was always like, "Oh, Notre Dame is my dream job," right? And no, it wasn't. He would have gone to Notre Dame if it was his dream job. But it's it's there's this this, this uh, romance about it, right? Um, and I think Lewis said something similar about how he dreamed of being in Ferraris at one point. Well, if you actually dreamed of being in Ferraris, you would have just gone to to a Ferrari. Um, if it was if it was a a viable plan at some point. Um, but there is this romance where people talk about it. Um even if it wasn't at, at sometimes practical for them to go there. Um, but I think what's interesting to now is because cars can follow each other, because um, we're seeing increased parity, maybe there's somebody else who can get in the mix here. Um, and I'm curious, you know, you talk about Mercedes kind of getting in the mix at the top here. Is there any other team that's going to win a Grand Prix in the next, I don't know, a couple of months that we're not thinking enough about, Nate? It's a really good question. And ordinarily... And I assume you mean beyond. So yeah, you've got the top three guys, and then who's the next one there? Yeah, well, no, yeah. Is, is there any? Is there any any other car right now that we're that after uh, the last two races? You're thinking, okay, well, actually, this this these guys might be in the mix in a way I didn't anticipate. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. And usually, you know, when you're in that kind of best of the rest category, that's what you want to be. But I think right. the team that stood out for me, obviously, I'd love to see Haas get a, a podium this year. But yeah. with them, it's it's going to be a question of can they maintain they've also got more development time than anyone else this year but can they maintain it over a season given the resources they have alpine has stood out to me ocon's result in saudi was really impressive and they've obviously done that before with hungary last year and i think what's great about f1 right now is you have every season you you seem to have one or two teams that are right at the front and Mm -hmm. these regulations have kind of brought that midfield even closer so that when there is drama up in front i think we could see a couple of really shock wins this year if if the first couple of races are ended to go by there's clearly a big gap between the front and the midfield but the midfield mm-hmm. is competitive enough that those guys there could still win so if i had to put money on it right now i would my heart would say Haas because mm. with kevin magnuson there he's been he's been driving the wheels off that car he's been fantastic and you just think you know if, if if you have a mixed up crazy race like hungary last year or monza in 2020 all you need is your car in the right position right now and a lot of those midfield teams have the pace to do it so I'd say Alpine, given what they did last year, and I, I would love Haas to maybe a win is is thinking way too much because you know sure. their highest position ever is fifth. But if <laughs> right now, you know, if you were to say which of the teams below Mercedes looks the most ready to be competitive, I think Alpha have kind of shown a couple of glimpses of being really quick, but Alpine looks really strong, uh, Haas looked really strong, and yeah, with, and that's crazy because I came into the season thinking that McLaren would easily be in the top two mix, you know, and they're not even in they're not even in my can they win a race this season? Um, surely at some point McLaren will get their heads around it because it's McLaren. You know, they're one of the biggest teams in the history of F1. But right now, I wouldn't be confident saying they can win a race this season at all. So what you're saying to me is I should have taken Haas in the F1 mock draft and not yeah. and not Alpha. Absolutely. I I I mean, I I loved I loved where you went with it, going Max and Lewis super team with Toto. I mean, that that is that is pretty and Adrian strong, Newey. Yeah, what are they? Yeah, not, what, they're they're, yeah. they're coaching them up. And to be honest, that, that Alpha in five years would have been the best-looking F1 car of all time with, with Nui there. <laughs> but um, the idea of, of Wolf, Verstappen, Hamilton, and Nui all sitting around the same table talking 
yeah, talking development, talking tactics was fascinating. I'd love how, to how to get into P5. Yeah, exactly. Like how are we gonna, how are we going to finish fifth here again for the tenth race in a row? Um, it, it feels like maybe the car would have let down the best F1 story of all time because you know they would have been crashing or, or colliding with each other maybe or going wheel to wheel fighting for yeah fighting for a position a few a few P7. places off the podium. Yeah, the uh, it was interesting to me because we we put so if if the listeners don't know so we had the draft last week that you heard and then we put a poll out saying who won the draft. And the actual answer of who won the draft was either Megan Schuster or Erica, because one of them got the Ferrari and one of them got the Red Bull car. Yep. But I guess because we have a newer audience, they saw the top of my draft, which was Lewis and Max, and I won overwhelmingly, which suggests that we have not done a good enough job educating people <laughs> that the car is pretty much all that matters. Like the, the drivers are a tiebreaker once you get into a certain rarefied air. But Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen are not defeating the Red Bull and Ferrari car in an alpha. That's just sort of how it goes. So I guess it's yeah. the onus is on us um, going forward to, to let everybody know it's the car, guys. I just thought you were an alpha uh, super fan. I thought maybe maybe you love the brand. <laughs> maybe maybe you were like, hey, I maybe you knew something that none of us none of us know. And I, you know, I, I, I was totally bought in, honestly. I'm a brand loyalist. Um, do Red Bull and Ferrari not hate each other? Like what what's I I'm worried that this title race. Is not going to have nothing can be what it was last year. Max and, and Leclerc can have have had some history, but you know they're giving thumbs up to each other and all that stuff. Uh, is this going to be too friendly of a title race if it's just these two guys pulling away from the pack, Nate? So far, that's what it looks like. But I really don't see that lasting. If you think back to last year, it's really easy to forget now. But the the the, the vibe between Lewis and Max at the start of last season was pretty positive. You know, they were both like. They were. I don't think they were doing exactly what Charles and Max are doing right now. But there was a lot of like, oh, you, you know, you drove a great race, and Max was loving racing against Lewis. I think Lewis has always been a bit wary of Max, I think, and kind of the way he drives. But he seemed to be enjoying it. And then when Imola happened, when Max pushed Lewis over those those curbs at turn yeah. one, it's kind of the first real instance that we had where their their fight on track, they weren't willing to give each other an inch, you know. And we saw that play out over the season. These two guys have. When I say these two guys, I mean Max and Charles. They have. They have had incidents before. You've probably seen the video going around from 2012 yeah. when, when the says, "Yeah, an incident." Um, and they had one in 2019. I was at the Austrian Grand Prix, and we waited for about four hours for the result of the race to be confirmed because Max denied what at the time would have been Charles's first win by basically, yeah. you know, driving him wide at that race to win on the final lap. So these two guys do have a history as well, and I think that right now. The dynamic for Max is very different to last year. He's won that championship. He's already kind of said, hey, I've, I could quit if I wanted to because I've won the championship. You know, that pressure's kind of gone for him. Charles Leclerc, I think, Charles is kind of, I, I'd love to get inside his head and see how he's wired because he never seems to really kind of appreciate the situations he's in. Like, he's just never phased by anything. And I think right now they're just kind of enjoying racing. As soon as it's mm -hmm. clear that it's Max versus Verstappen, so Max versus Verstappen, Max versus Charles all season, I think that's when the, the dynamic changes uh, as the year goes on and we'll get more pressure. You're going to get situations where one of them won't give the other one an inch. Mm -hmm. And let's not forget as well that that's, I'm just talking about the drivers. I think Christian Horner is one of the great provocateurs in sport. I think he's really good at winding people up, getting under people's skin. It's kind of how he's operated. He likes, he's a bit like Jose Mourinho to me. He likes being yes. back against the wall. It's us versus the world. And it rubs a lot of people the wrong way, but people in Red Bull love that. Oh, I, I know a lot of people at Red Bull and, you know, their opinion of Horner is probably different to what maybe people who watch Drive to Survives this season would be. <laughs> and that, and that's not me trying to knock Christian Horner. I think he's got a very specific management style. And if you're on his team, you love him. If, 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 if you're not, then maybe, you know, you find him very frustrating. But 
a lot of managers have found that very effective over the years to win. And um, I think that if you compare Horner to Benotto, you've got you've got a, a similar clash of personalities, perhaps like you have with Toto and with Christian. Um, I think that what, what might be different with this is that Red Bull and Ferrari are both coming at it from they haven't won for a long time. Obviously, Red Bull won yeah. drivers last year, haven't won the constructors for a long time. Ferrari have been very humbled over the years. Mercedes last year, it was it was a bit, it wasn't quite David versus Goliath because I'd never called the Red Bull F1 team David in, <laughs> in that situation. But it was a team that had been dominating versus kind of a team that had been frustrated to be dormant for so long. And the, the, the dynamic is all just different this year. So if it does get better this year, I think we'll see it. But I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I think that naturally when there is a championship fight that's close, tensions mm-hmm. just automatically will start to fester and start to linger. But Red Bull and Mercedes, it did get very toxic last year. I remember being in Brazil, going between the two paddocks and just talking about uh, the two motorhomes, talking about those guys in the paddock. And you could tell like it had really boiled over, not just from Toto and Christian, but like ordinary people in Mercedes were were just yeah. frustrated at what the other one's doing. And when you're in almost an echo chamber, maybe of your team, you suddenly think, well, that everything that team's doing is the worst thing ever. And they're saying the yeah. same about you. We're not quite at that yet with Ferrari and Red Bull, but I'm not convinced that's going to, that's going to last. I think give it maybe British Grand Prix. Maybe that every year is going to be like the, the race where things go nuclear every year. It's hot. Everyone's, it. everyone's a little frustrated <laughs> up. Yeah. I will say Bonotto, um, not speaking English in, in Drive to Survive is a great move because you can just avoid the back of yeah. the, the quick cuts between the two. Like it, yeah. it just it's a little bit different when And I've never uh, seen I've never seen him and JJ Abrams in the same room. So I'm part of me is still yeah. convinced that that is him. Uh, and uh, wait, he's just fluent <laughs> in Italian. And when he when he wants to speak Italian, he he goes and dresses up in a Ferrari outfit. When he doesn't, he's just a Hollywood director who loves Star Wars and Star Trek and stuff like that. So uh hey, I might be wrong. <laughs> they might both be in Miami and then they'll stand together. But until then. My conspiracy theory that I'm my hill that I'm dying on is that those two guys are the same people. <laughs> What's one thing that people who've never been inside a paddock should know, according to people who have been inside a paddock? Like when you're there, you you learn what for someone who's never been there for the listener. For frankly, I've never been inside an F1 paddock. Like what what is what do you learn on the inside? There's, I think, the. The way the paddock is laid out, you have these 10 motorhomes that are just kind of spread along tarmac behind the pit lane. Yeah. Everything is so close together that you could, if you wanted to, you could just go and walk into, well, it, it, it was slightly harder in COVID times, obviously, but in normal times, you can just go and walk into another motorhome. Sometimes mm-hmm. you need an invite. You can go sit down, you can order a coffee. You can do that if you want. And it's not rare to see a Ferrari guy in a Red Bull motorhome or you know, Helmut Marco talking to Toto Wolf outside Mercedes. And sometimes you see these pictures and people read a lot into them. It would be like if, yeah. if, uh, you know, and if Belichick went into the, into yeah, the, it, happens, into the all the again. Time. it yeah. happens all the time. Like I, I, I was, t- I remember my first owner's meeting. I saw Steve Bishotti, the owner of the Ravens and Bill Belichick drinking wine on the patio at the Biltmore. And I remember thinking like, Oh, well, like, I wonder what they're, what are they talking trade or whatever? And somebody was like, they're just, they're just doing the talking. NFL, drinking some wine. Yeah. That's it. And what, there's nothing, yeah. nothing happening here. Exactly. And because the paddock is obviously there's there's cameras and stuff there, a lot of this stuff gets picked up. And sometimes people can make wild leaps based on on this. But you forget yeah. that a lot of these guys, they're tenured F1 guys. A lot of these guys have been in the paddock for 30 years. They've probably worked for yes. two or three of the teams. Yeah. They know each other. You know, they might they might travel together, they might go on holiday together. So you get this, this, this weird kind of I don't think there's many other sports that can claim to be like this. But you've got this yeah. almost traveling circus kind of mentality, and yeah. everything. Got yeah, golf's probably a great example, and, and that's why I'm interested to see how the how that Netflix show goes. Because I think they're very similar 
although they're completely different on 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 the final product. They're similar in the way they go about things. I don't know. I've I've never actually been asked that question before, and I'm str- I'm struggling to think exactly what I'm what I'm trying to say with the answer. But I think <laughs> the fact that the nature of it being so close together is that that's why you get a Toto Wolf and a Christian Horner situation because those two guys spend half the year mm-hmm. so you know within a couple hundred meters of each other operating every day. One of them talks to the media, then the other one talks to the media, and they say this guy just said this about you. And I think in in a lot of other sports, people have they you know that. Their, their, their base is, you know, 20 miles away from someone else's or, or whatever it is. And you, you can go off and you can decompress, you can train with your teammates and come back. You can still do a lot of that stuff in racing, but when you're competing, mm-hmm. you can see the faces of the guys on the pit wall. You can see the, the pit crews coming out. They can try and fool you into doing that stuff. So what I've always been impressed with when I walk through the gates is that it, it feels like you walk into your own little world that's concealed in that paddock. And, and yeah, it's, it's just nuts. The information you can find in there, the people that you can meet in there and, Ultimately, it's why silly season, why the driver market is so difficult to read in F1 because everyone is talking to each other all the time. And you might see one guy say, well, I've, I saw, let's say, Danny Rick talking to Renault. You know, mm. I, I, I saw that plenty in 2018, but none of us thought he was going to move there. You just thought, oh, he must know guys from, you know, from the Renault side. He must just know guys from the team there or whatever. So it, it's a very different scenario to anything I've ever been involved in before because you just have everything is almost on top of each other all year. People are traveling. You see it, it, one of the weirdest things I ever see is when you get on a plane and you, you, you know, you walk through the plane to the back and at the front of the plane, you, you might see, I don't know, I've never seen Ross Braun on there, but you see some high ranking F1 yeah. guys or team guys. And you're like, that's weird, isn't it? We're just traveling together on this. There's no team coach. You know, there's not like a, like a team Mercedes coach flying through the sky. So hopefully that answers the question. That was probably a bit. No, like, it does. Place, I, I, as someone after Miami, I'm, I'm flying to Europe. My wife's going to be there for work. And I was trying to book, the next day from or even Sunday night from Miami to Europe. And I can confidently say that there are enough people on commercial airlines from the F1 teams that I will not be flying directly from Miami. It is a it, it is it is a crowded route is all I'll say about that. Honestly, play play F1 plane bingo if you can. Just just look ar- look look around. You'll see a lot of guys in team kit. They have travel kit. So <laughs> when you travel as much as me, you you end up noticing like, all right, well that that's what the McLaren guys wear when they travel. Yeah. Like they don't they don't go decked out in their in, in explicit team kit, but you if you look close enough, like their bags are all branded and stuff. So it's not unusual to 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 meet another journalist and you're like, oh yeah, McLaren was on my flight or Alfa Romeo was on, <laughs> on your flight, which is kind of crazy. Like if you, if you were going to the Super Bowl and you're like, yeah, you know, the Rams were on my flight over, but I didn't talk to any of them. I just saw the Rams there. You, you'd think like that's a bit crazy. Like the drive, obviously the drivers aren't there, but the bulk of the team, the guys that you know, the guys that put the car together, they travel like like most of us do, you know, they're just kind of regular people doing that. So yeah. I've always found that pretty interesting and it, and it always kind of impresses me that that's just the way things, the way things have always operated. I want to get to the Americanization of F1 and what, what that's going to do to the sport, what that's doing to people who are already in the sport. I want to get to that, but I want to focus here on Australia here for a second, because this is almost, I mean, it's the same track. I've played it probably more than any other track on uh, simulator F1 kind of on, on PlayStation because it's the first one and it's always the yeah. first one of the season and yeah. so usually the first one of the season. So it's always like, Oh, I'll get ready for Australia. And I've played it and it's not that exciting of a track. And if you look at the numbers on overtakes, I think, I think they have more overtakes than Monaco and that's it. Um, when yeah. you look at regular F1 tracks, so they've completely changed it. Um, widened five turns, um, four DRS zones, which is a record. Uh, I think this should be an overtaking masterpiece. Um, I guess you could say uh, what 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 does this look like this weekend, and who does this sort of track favor? 
think overtaking is going to be is, is going to be like nothing we've seen in Australia before for those reasons. The DRS thing really surprised me because the fact the cars can follow closer now, I thought that maybe we'd be reeling in DRS as it goes through the year. So the fact they've gone for four to see how that plays out will be interesting. Um, Australia, I, I'm exactly the same as you. That that even if you downloaded the demo of an F1 game, you got Australia. That was the one that you that yeah. you got. So I think everybody who's been an F1 fan for you know, for going back to when Australia opened the circuit, that is the one on F1 that everyone plays. And there's just chaos in the first couple of corners because it's tight, it's twisty. It's a great circuit. And one of the things I think they used to make it great was that back in, you know, I'd say 10, 20 years ago, reliability at the start of the season was a real problem. You often have the Australian Grand Prix, 10 cars would finish. And I think that's where some of the appeal of the Australian Grand Prix came from. Because when you actually watch the races back, like you say, there wasn't that much drama there. So this year I'm excited to see how that plays out. That I mean, that middle sector, they might not even they might not even need to touch the brake for half of <laughs> half of that long, yeah. that long straight now. Um, I think that what this is going to do from a perspective of who's going to win the race, we've seen two races which have effectively been a race on track, but a race in the minds of Leclerc and Verstappen over how to use the DRS against each other. So I think that that's going to be really fascinating to play out over. I tweeted, obviously, tongue-in-cheek the other day, that they should pass each other about 400,000 times over the course of a lap <laughs> now with, with that many DRS zones. But I think that the encouraging thing with this first two races is that clearly the the new cars are working. You know, the, the cars are doing what Ross Braun wanted them to do, follow a lot closer. Mm-hmm. Guys can get right up behind the other car and they can they can make moves happen. Um, and yeah, the, the the kind of games we saw in Saudi, I think we're going to keep seeing. In terms of who the circuit will suit, that's a really fascinating question because this was one of those circuits as well where you it, it would often set the tone for the season. I remember Ferrari winning a couple of races here with, with Sebastian yeah. Vettel, and you suddenly thought, yeah, this is a year for Ferrari, and then maybe it wouldn't be that representative to the races that would follow. And I think we're going to get that again. I think that it's still going to be a Red Bull-Ferrari uh, fight out front, but it seemed like Red Bull maybe had the edge when it came to outright power and when they were doing, um, so when, when Max and Charles were fighting late on, I think once Max got ahead of him, he seemed to pretty easily be comfortable just ahead of him. I know there was a, a short gap there, but he was just able to keep him out of that DRS, uh, DRS range. So I would say maybe it suits Red Bull, but it's really hard to call at the moment. We haven't seen this kind of circuit in F1, you know, this season. And we've had that string of races in the Middle East and those, those circuits are all very similar. Lots of runoff zones. And this one, yeah, you always see someone get caught out. So I'm expecting a really good one. I, I don't know why it is the Australian Grand Prix. Maybe it is because everyone plays it on the PlayStation or the Xbox or whatever, but you just know the circuit. And there's so many places where a lap can go wrong for a driver that there's going to be some drama at some at some point. I, I think it was, it might have been 2019, Daniel Ricciardo put his wheels on the grass at the start. And you know his, his home race lasted a couple of hundred meters and he was out. Um, something always seems to crop up in Australia, and that seems to be where the the appeal of the circuit comes from. I'm certainly expecting that, especially at the front. It's been pretty close, so this could be. You were saying earlier, it's been quite nice at the front. I think it could change here, just given the nature of the circuit. And and that first chicane, if you want to pass there, that's one of the narrowest circuits that isn't in Monaco in Formula One. Yeah. You actually look at it. So yeah, I can see I can see some some drama there for sure. All right, the Americanization of F1. I think it's been a little bit overblown in this sense. 1982, yeah. there were 16 races, and three of them were in the United States. Long Beach, Detroit, and then Las Vegas, oddly enough. And I believe the Las Vegas one was as roundly panned as any F1 race has ever been. It looks um, like the sort, of, the sort of circuit that Charles 
just drew, you know, on a, on a piece of paper, like I want it, I want it like this. And they're like, yeah, fine. That works. It's a car park race. Like let's do it. And I'm so glad yep. Vegas didn't go that route this time around. Yep. That was, that was the famous car park F1 uh, race in 1982 <laughs> was not was, you know, and, and the F1 calendar was different. They had a race in, in South Africa back then. Um, it was, you know, there were no races in the middle East. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, there were no uh, races in, in Asia at all. Um, but there's been a sea change over the last couple of years. And obviously, like Liberty Media owning it and and the American investment is important. The fact that Haas is in, there there will be at some point an American team. And and we'll we'll I don't know what that looks like, but there will be an American team. At some point, there has to be an American driver. Again, again, you can look to the past. There were, I, I believe there was a year in Monaco uh in the 60s when there were two Americans in both Ferraris. Okay. Like this is there's almost been Sean Kelly made the point on Twitter earlier this week. There's been a de-Americanization in some ways. And a lot of that is because of the the cultural uh currency of NASCAR, especially in the 90s and early 2000s growing up in Florida, 45 minutes from Daytona. I I I certainly understand um NASCAR's rise and and the NASCAR um, and, and it, kind of NASCAR's fall over the past decade. And it was interesting because I don't know if you saw this, but I guess last week a couple of NASCAR drivers were asked about F1 and its rise. And Kevin Harvick, um, one of the best NASCAR racers of generation, basically said all of his son, his son and all of his friends are karting and they all want to be Red Bull. They all want to be Ferrari. They all want to be Mercedes. They don't want to be um, they don't want to be in, in the in the M&M's car, um, even though M&M's actually in <laughs> NASCAR next year. Um, but it, it was interesting because Harvick said he had talked to IndyCar officials about fighting the rise of, F, of F1, and they actually blew him off, um, which I thought was an interesting quote. Um, but how do people inside the sport view the fact that they're going to be going to America three times next year and just the rise of America in general as a, as a force within F1 when it hadn't been for decades, Nate? Yeah, so it's a really good it's a really good question, especially within versus outside of the sport. I think there are maybe yeah. different perceptions. And F one for so long was was run by Bernie Eccleston, and I've yeah. actually I, I was actually just now reading a, a, an article from 2017 that my colleague Lawrence Edmondson wrote on ESPN, which was um, he interviewed Chase Carey about the plans for America, and he he said in that, and it's really interesting reading it because it's it's pretty profound when you know what happens in the years that follow that. It was that America was kind of seen as a short term. Um, a short-term approach. Every every time America yeah. F1 went to a place, it was like, right, let's just get a race at Indianapolis. Let's just get a race in Phoenix. Let's just get a race at Watkins Glen, whatever it was. There was no attempt made to really set up a, a base there. And I think that you're right to mention NASCAR in the 90s. I mean, I think most American youngsters growing up would have wanted to be someone like Dale Earnhardt or Jimmy Johnson or something like that. Because yeah. Dan those, and Ricardo did want to be Dale Earnhardt, by yeah. the way. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. Exactly why he races with the number three. And I think that, that it's fascinating that Harvick said that because it's the first time that that's been the case. You know, if, if you look at American racing stars going back years and years, the Andretti name is one of the strongest names in America ever. And obviously he raced in F1, but probably had the bulk of his, of his career spent in America. And the Andretti name now is synonymous with IndyCar. So I think... It's a really interesting way things have changed. I think I, I'm, I mean, I work for ESPN. I'm a fan of the NFL. Like I, I've got nothing against the Americanization of F1. And I think that in F1, people have woken up to the fact that there's just this massive untapped market in the yeah. States for F1 that really, it's kind of crazy that, that no one really noticed that before because <laughs> it's not like yeah. it's a new thing. It's not like America suddenly just popped up out of nowhere. You know, NFL and NBA have been huge for years, for decades. And uh, I, I always go back to this. Now, in 2014, it was the first year I worked for, I started working for ESPN. 
I remember writing a piece where the, the, the Football World Cup was that year in Brazil. The Twitter account for the football that they had, for the ball that they played with, yeah. back then had more, had more followers than F1 did. There was just no approach. <laughs> there was no approach to social. There was no understanding of, of different audiences. It was, this yeah. is how we do things. It's always how we've done things. We don't need to change. And that included the approach to America. And I think that obviously Liberty coming in are an American company. They've seen what Netflix can do. And I think Netflix has been probably one of the biggest things that F1 ever embraced. They were the first people to do it and drive to survive. Whatever you think of the, you know, the current yeah. season, I think what it's done for F1 has been huge. But it's just opened up people's eyes to the fact that there's this huge market there. And you have cities now like Vegas that aren't just saying, we'll give you a car park race. They're willing to say, we will, we will close down. Shut down the city. The most, yeah. One of the most famous streets in the world. And we will let you race there for, for, for three days. You know, we'll, it, it will be closed down for longer. The fact that Vegas are willing to do that, it shows you just how much F1 has grown over the past couple couple of years. And I never thought Vegas would do that. One of the things that the New York race that was planned always struggled with was it was like they, they always said, well, you can race, but it can be out kind of in Jersey. You know, if, if you can see the yeah, skyline, yeah, yeah. Like, are, you, are you happy with that still? And, and it was kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. And it always seemed like such a wasted opportunity. But now I think F1 people realize, I mean, F1 every year, Austin has stepped up the game in terms of what to expect from that race. Last year, being at Cota was one of the one of the best experiences in F1 I can remember because the crowd was just so great. And I thought this feels yeah. like it's, it feel, it, I, 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 I've never been to a Super Bowl, so I never want to say it feels like that, but it felt like the most American event yes. I've been to. I went to the Indy 500 when Fernando Alonso did it and it felt like that. And so people in F1 are realizing that that's the case. People outside, I know European fans are maybe worried about the Americanization, but I think it's a great thing because it's just going to get bigger and bigger. And, and let's not forget Netflix has opened up F1, not just to America, but yeah. there's no race in Africa. There's no race. There's only a few races in Asia. So if it wants to be a world championship, you have to Americanize it a little bit. So um, I think it's a great thing. And I, to be honest with you, I, I, I don't see F1 stopping at three races in America either. I think that this is the hottest F1's ever been in America. Yeah. And I think you're going to have people like Jerry Jones, another NFL owner, thinking, oh, we've missed the boat on this one. Let's get ourselves an F1 race at some point. So I if agree. you are... If you are worried about the Americanization listening to this, then I've got bad news for you because I think it's just <laughs> going to keep. I think it's just going to keep getting. I, I would say better, but some people might say worse. But um, I think it's great. And and Max Lewis last year showed you that that captured people's attention beyond just yeah. like the European heartland. And that's great if you if 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 you love the sport and it keeps growing, then I think it's a great thing. I totally agree. It was interesting. I just want to clarify one thing because I got a lot of mentions about this when I said that NFL owners and coaches and GMs were asking about. NFL, or excuse me, about Formula One, no, none of them wanted to buy a team because they don't want to yeah. put up that kind of cash. They yeah, want to like right. go to a race. They want to take the private jet, as I said. They want to maybe host a race like Stephen Ross. Like no one is going to buy, trust me, no one's buying Haas right now and injecting $400 million into it. NFL owners yeah. are about uh, making insane profits and buying an F1 team and, and getting to the top of the grid is not an insane profit making <laughs> venture. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think um, it's. I think that's one of the things that a lot of people are realizing is that the the idea of the idea of buying a, a a soccer team or an NFL team is a completely different proposition to buying a race team because there's no guarantee if you do all the right things that you're going to win. You, you know, you, you might make one misstep on development or whatever it is. But just to go back to the American point as well, the Americanization point, I think that it was incredibly smart of Formula One to position F1 like this because you. <laughs> When you're going after younger fans and you're going after new markets, you have to change the approach. You know, F1, I don't think is ever going to struggle to have European fans. It's been racing here 
since 1950. You know, it, I think most European F1 fans are probably very lucky to have a lot of races on their doorstep. You've got, I, I don't know exactly off the top of my head, the distance between Vegas, Miami and Austin, but you could probably fit about it's, seven or eight European races. Yeah. Yep. You could probably fit the, you know, a lot of those races back to back in them uh, distance wise. So that's also worth considering that when you, when you look at it as a country, you're like, yeah, America has three races, but you look at it as a mass of land and you say, well, this huge stretch of land obviously hosts three races. You've got Mexico, you've got Canada, a lot of people yeah. there. Yeah. I, I just think it, 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 I don't understand why people really struggle with it. I don't know whether it's because it, maybe they see it as more dramatic or whatever, but it's been undeniably good for F1. And I think it's just going to keep getting better. And as someone who's been to Tyson Fury fights in Vegas, I'm ready to tell you, people are going to fly over from England for this Las Vegas race. 100%. I agree with you. <laughs> I think it's going to... I, I, I actually... I'm not sure if you agree, Kevin, but I think this race... I've always struggled with Monaco. Like I, I like it as an event. I think it's a great spectacle. But as a race itself, it's not the best. You know, it, it, it's very difficult right. to pass. I think if, they, if, if this circuit is... is in Vegas is good for racing. I think Vegas immediately becomes the race on the calendar, the one that everyone says, this is the one. Because it's it's also near enough to the end of the season that it might be incredibly um, uh, important in determining who wins the championship or who takes a step towards the championship. I just see it as exactly what F1 right now wants itself to be. Monaco, Monaco to me suits what Bernie Eccleston saw F1 as, very elitist, very... You know, it's, it's, it's for a certain audience of people. And that's not me knocking right. people that are wealthy at all, but that's just a fact of what Bernie... Bernie once said that the people he wanted watching F1 races were yep. the people that could afford a Rolex watch. Rolex, which, yep. Yeah, which is kind, of, is, is kind of nuts to say when you look at where F1 is now. But Vegas is so different to Monaco. And I think that that indicates to me the sea change and how much things have, have developed under Liberty Media. And um, I, can, I think it's just going to keep on going that way. Omega is now making like $200 swatches now. We've changed, okay? Like the watch market <laughs> yeah. has changed, Bernie. Um, all right, Nate Saunders, thank you so much. He's at ESPN. Follow him. He's going to be at 13 races this year and he does a great job. Thank you, dude. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, View its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, Jody Walker, staff writer at The Ringer. You were only hired a couple months ago, so this is our first time really talking. This What's is our on? first time. I'm so excited to talk F1 with you. We were just talking about South Carolina. You live in North Carolina. 
I live in North Carolina, a real media hub. Uh, but Asheville. Asheville is the media capital of the world, I've heard. It is. And and people here are known for their love of television. Just kidding. No one understands what I do. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I moved here from New York a few years ago. So it's uh, it's good to keep a fresh mindset. So I'm excited to talk to you because you've covered Drive to Survive for our website now, um, going on two years. And I think that, you know, Nate Saunders and I just talked about this and, and you can't really talk about the Americanization of F1. They just added a third race without talking about Drive to Survive. And the fact that it's a it's a great reality show. And I remember Connor Nevins, who's my editor, when he was editing um, the first piece I wrote about Drive to Survive a year and a half ago, he, he I was explaining this to him and he's like, this just sounds like selling Sunset in cars. And I'm like, yeah, that's just, <laughs> just that's basically that's basically what it is. Um, and and one thing I think that you've done a really good job at is exploring the personalities of, of these drivers and and kind of what um, what they mean, how they interact, because I think that a lot of times people have, have asked me why Formula One is taken off in America. And to me, the drive to survive effect is so interesting. Because I think that there are so many people who have gotten into Formula One through it. I think that there are people who started watching and they saw Daniel Ricciardo on a farm in episode one in season one. And all of a sudden, they're studying um, rear wings and they're studying, you know, Alpine Alpine's diffuser situation. Um, that to me is the most fascinating thing. But at the most basic level, it still can be a reality show. Um, and I'm curious when you view this current season. What do you think you want to see covered going forward that would sort of further what we've already seen the past couple of years? Okay, so yeah, Formula One is so fascinating as um, as a sort of reality TV show. I would give it some credit to also say that as a sports docuseries meets reality TV show. Sure. But yeah, so much of that fascination comes in as it's able to explore like the personalities of these drivers, the idiosyncrasies of the sport. I think Formula One is like tailor made to be a reality TV yes. show in a way that no other sport is because it's so personal. There are so few drivers on the track, like 10 itty bitty little teams of two is just such a crazy construct for a sport to me. Yes. That that's part of what makes it so fascinating. Um, and so I think the most each season can get into those personalities, the way that they interplay with each other, the way that they interplay within a team is so such like a wild, unique thing to Formula One. Um, so you asked which which things I'm most excited to see, yeah. like in season five of Formula One or of Drive to Survive. Um, you know, I, <laughs> I, no, I just like I like they've become one and the same. Oh, oh, for this season of Formula One, right, it's like, right. well, yeah. I, I should be pretty clear that to me, they are one in the same. So when you That's asked right. me to come on this show, I was and like, you're, you're not alone in thinking that. I know. I said, Kevin, I am not an expert. I don't want to upset anyone. What I am is a drive to survive canon only loyalist. My next question is about DRS and Australia's track changes. And I'm expecting you to know all of these things. Jody. Okay, cool. If you could just quickly tell me what DRS stands for, that would be extremely helpful. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, so yeah, I I take in Formula One through Drive to Survive on purpose. Yeah. I like watching the show with fresh eyes, and like I yeah. I know what's going on in the season per, a little bit, but mostly only as like a platform for me to <laughs> watch sure. more Drive to Drive to Survive. So I do know that um, Charles Leclerc is doing well, and that yes. Ferrari 
is doing some real interesting stuff out there, including being, you know, at the top. Um, I'm really excited about that for season five of Drive to Survive because I think the early seasons set up Charles Leclerc as this, like, like savior to the sport, yes. you know? Like, he's this wonderkind. He is, like, born and bred for this raised in Monaco, like 10 people are raised in Monaco and he is one That's of right. them. And, and, and then never paid seasons, a tax in his life, never paid a dime <laughs> of taxes. And it shows in the personal care that he takes of his face and his hair. He's, mm-hmm. he is a perfect, perfect formula one specimen. And, but then, you know, in season three and four, I think we haven't really seen that come to fruition. He hasn't really had like a big storyline part of right. that due to Ferrari, part of that due to the drive to survive editors. Like his main storyline last season was losing and, you know, not getting to perform in the way that he wanted to. And so, and I really like him. I, he's like a funny guy. I, he he seems nice. I always like when these drivers seem nice. Um, and so I'm excited to see him in season five, uh, hopefully be able to like show off and show out a little and perform. Are you saying that if we didn't pay taxes, we'd all have better skin? That we could that, that Leclerc is reinvesting, reinvesting his tax savings into skincare, toner, moisturizer. I'm saying that if I had 25% more of my salary to put por- <laughs> towards my skincare, I would yeah. be thriving. That's a that's a great point. Um, that's a that's that's a good jumping off point for all this. Um, I would say that Leclerc and his storylines in Drive to Survive, the first year where he was teamed with Vettel, and they basically the storyline was that Vettel is ancient. And Leclerc could not be younger. As someone who was more or less the same age as Sebastian Vettel, like I think that there was, I, I believe there was a scene in which Vettel was playing like the offspring, and Leclerc yeah. was like, "What the hell is this?" <laughs> yeah, like that. That I, I'm glad to see that Leclerc is old enough to to win now. After after that uh, that entire storyline was, this man is ancient. I always say that like the breakdown of the drive to survive drive or sorry, the Formula One drivers is that they either look like they're in a boy band or they look like they're in they're retired from a boy band and about to become a coach on the voice. And like that breakdown of Vettel (laughs) and Leclerc was was like a perfect representation of that. Vettel's about to be a judge on the masked singer. Yeah, like can you absolutely see him spinning around? I think it's different. Okay, I I said the voice, in which case I believe they're coaches. On Masked Singer, I think they're just like Nicole Scherzinger. I think they're just all Nicole Scherzinger. Um, Masked Singer is the most dystopian, apocalyptic thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And it's just been going on silently for like 20 seasons. I don't know who watches it, but it is is out there. And yeah, it's probably the first strike of the apocalypse. We'll get get Vettel on there. Um, All right, let's do... Let's do, as someone who studies these personalities very closely, let's do best hangs. Let's do a hang draft. We're doing a dinner. Oh We're doing a dinner draft, okay? We're doing a dinner Kevin, draft. Kevin, I've been incredibly clear that I don't understand drafts, but I'll do what you tell me to. Okay, so... I can do it. All right, so we're just going to we're gonna go through. We're, you and I are walking into a restaurant, okay? Walking into a restaurant in Monaco. What's, is there a name of a good restaurant in Monaco? I don't know. Um, There's probably a lot. There's probably a lot. Um... Tweet us the best restaurants in Monaco. This is the hypothetical one that we're that we're going to. And there's two tables, and we have to pick. We have to round out our table. Okay, you okay. get first pick. We're walking with everybody on the grid. You get first pick. Who's at your table? Carlos Sainz. Mm. Best hang. I, he's just. I. He's. He just seems nice. He seems 
fun. He seems like he can get along with anyone. Like that's what Drive to Survive is pushing home to us is that he mm-hmm. is the, he's never met a teammate who didn't like him. So and that can only be watching he and Charles Leclerc just like giggle and text together in the last season mm-hmm. was a real highlight. And I want someone who can proofread my text over dinner in Monaco. When Lando got his contract and his contract extension with McLaren and Leclerc was like text him and ask how many years it was. And Carlos was like, I think first I'm going to say something like congrats. Yeah. It was the best contrast in those personalities I've ever seen. Exactly. And when Carlos Sainz asks me how much money I'm making, I want a little congrats at the beginning. Um, It's, yeah, (laughs) I I think Charles Leclerc is probably also a good hang, but Carlos Sainz being the number one teammate on the grid suggests that he could be my number one best friend. He also has a great life. I loved in season three, just watching him like go from sport to sport, eat watermelon on the beach. He's a good one. Okay. Wa- I missed yours? the watermelon on the beach. Oh, that's basically it. Him hanging out on okay. the beach with his friends, ordering watermelon chair side at, I'm sure whatever resort he was staying at. Um, My, my number one pick is going to be, it's going to be Lewis Hamilton. It's wow. going to be Lewis Hamilton because I, I think he's got a a varied set of interests. I feel like the whole thing, I don't, I do not have dinner with with ultra famous people ever, right? I don't know who the most famous person I've ever had dinner with is. Um, okay. But a lot of times you just don't have a lot in common with them, right? Like they don't vacation in the same spots. They don't consume the same same things. They don't watch the same TV, all that stuff. You got to have a have have someone where there's just a, a lot of ground to cover. I feel like Lewis and I could connect on something on something. Whereas I feel like a lot of guys, it's just like, you know, they live they live in a, a, a place I'm never going to spend much time in. They do things I don't do a lot. I feel okay, like Lewis but, is, so is Kevin, most- you're saying you don't have dinner with a lot of famous people. So you're choosing the most famous driver on the grid. Yeah, I, okay. I am. You got, I'm okay. going right into the deep end of the pool. Yeah. We're he does seem relatable. Something. He seems very He has kind. a house in Colorado. <laughs> Do you know a lot about Colorado? I, I mean, I can Google. It's a quick Google in the Monaco bathroom. It's a quick, it's, it's easy. I just, I just solved the problem. I can bring up the Broncos. You know? I don't think it's a wild choice. I just think that Lewis Hamilton is so enigmatic. Of course, I think that he knows a lot about a lot of things and, and would be so nice to you and could relate to you a lot. But he is a he is a tough nut to crack. I want to leave this dinner deeply understanding my new Formula One best friend. Who's your second? Oof. My second is... Okay, I just want to... I want to put out there that I want it to be Checo Perez because... Mm. I love him. He, I think of, I think of all the personalities in Drive to Survive, he has like grown the most and we've come to know him the most as this like amazing team player and nice guy and offering private jet rides to Gunter Steiner. But I feel Mm. like I've already kind of got like a sweetie at the table in Carlos Sainz. So I'm going to go Jost Capito, Williams team principal. Wow. We can do team principals, right? took him. Yeah, of course. Erica okay. also took him in the draft last week. I think that there's a there's a Joe Scapito hive that I wasn't familiar with. He was on my hoot. radar. Really? Okay. okay. I mean, I just I loved the Williams episode in season four, yeah. and so much of that was due to him. He just comes in with this like crazy fresh energy. He seems like a nut, and 
like he you'd be able to relate to him on anything because he would talk about anything for what I feel is ours. All right. I'm going to stick to drivers. I am going to go check out Perez. I uh, he had a Beyond the Grid episode that I really liked. Uh, it's a podcast. It's an F1 sort of branded podcast that they, they mm-hmm. run themselves where they talk to the drivers and Checo. Uh, I'm a big watch guy and Checo uh, says that he buys a watch for every accomplishment in his life. And then they kept asking him on different accomplishments. And he was like, oh, it's about 30 watches. And I think that he just kind of looks for excuses to buy watches. <laughs> he was like, oh, I, it's like my when I have a kid that's born, I buy right. a watch. But when it's like I, a chicken like, and an egg situation. Yeah. You want a watch, a you do something good. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like we could at least talk about my watch collection, which consists of, of one nice watch. And his, it's right. 30. And like maybe if you're impressive enough, he's throwing a watch your way. That's you exactly do? right. He's I mean, very maybe. nice. That's why I like him. He's he's so generous. Like I will never get over him. Also, another that North American. He's also North American. So all of a sudden, we're talking about Mexico and Colorado. All of a sudden, this is my we wheelhouse. Have, we have two I can tell geographical about the locations to, on the table. Tell him about the time I went to Mexican wine country. Look, we're there. You know, that's a Kevin, watch. You that's a watch in my pocket. <laughs> You established that we are new colleagues, but so I had no idea that geography was like such a point of conversation for you. You got to have conversation starters. Otherwise, you're you going to get through an appetizer. Come on. You got to. Um, all right. Who's your last one? This is big. Oh, we get three. Yeah. It's a four-person okay. dinner. Okay. Okay. What kind of dinners are you having? We walked in with the entire grid, Jody. I don't know. I've never been to Monaco. I thought they were three-person tables. We thought okay, they were it's- <laughs> triangle tables. It's uh, it's Pierre Gasly. Oh wow! Wild card off the board. Off, no, no, I I agree. Oh really? Okay, great. I feel like my love of Pierre Gasly is so specific to Drive to Survive. I know that he's a great driver, and that and that real Formula One fans like him. But he is in season three. He had such a hero's like a signature hero's journey mm-hmm. of of like, you know, being knocked down by like big bad Christian Horner. And then just in that car, like, let's go score some fucking points. And then he did yep. it. And like, I just want to know more about him. I want to know what his personality is like. He is okay. There's a third category to the style of drive to survive a Formula One driver, which is boy band member, retired boy band member, and 80s villain, 80s movie villain. And I feel like he is at like the complete nexus of that. And yeah. I just, I just want to know what else is there. All right. Did I so, steal him from you? Was he going to be no, your next I mean, one? I, I, he was definitely, it was definitely on my big board. Um, I was going to say that. I was thinking about taking Max Verstappen because I'm all set on conversation and I just want someone who's just not going to not going to talk. I feel like Verstappen just wouldn't say anything the whole time and uh and that'd be good. But I'm I'm I, maybe I need a glue guy here. Um just a guy who can really spice it up. So I'm going to take You can talk Yuki about Sonoda. any state, any country. Sorry. Well, no, no, that? Yuki, I feel like <laughs> y- Yuki Sonoda um could could just come out and and just say some Crazy stuff as he did right. in Drive to Survive. Um, Gasly obviously was uh, amused by him. I kind of feel like he's not going to dominate the conversation, but every couple of minutes he's going to come out and just say something that just keeps the party going a little bit. You know, we're how do you wine, feel about being like, right? How do you feel about being kept completely abreast of his bathroom and GI situation throughout the entire dinner? That seems to be I mean, like a pretty it, main point of combo. It's the tax you pay. It's the tax you pay for Yuki yeah. being at your table and keeping it going. 
That's right. I think that's a great choice. Yuki is a ton of fun. I loved his episode. I am excited to get to know him more in season five. And uh, just like a, I love I love those episodes about the young drivers. And like, I, I think there's such a steep learning curve to figuring out how to do this sport with the very top 20 drivers in the world is wild. And you could you could ask him you could ask him even more about his training regimen in the most boring city in England. I'm liking the idea that if the entire grid walked in, there'd be like a tough table that nobody wants to be at. Like Verstappen's probably at the table. I really like Verstappen okay, as a driver, see, but he's probably almost, at the tough table. I almost drafted Verstappen because much like you know, I said with Pierre Gasly, I I wanna know more about him. He he feels yeah. like the driver on the grid of drive to survive grid that I I understand the least because he won't participate anymore um and i i don't think he'd be silent I, I i think he'd probably have a lot to say and i'm curious what it would be should have drafted but, him uh, <laughs> now he's at the tough table across the room um last question for you jody the uh I, I think that for someone who studies reality or writes about reality tv shows as much as you do you probably see a lot of people who are just playing to the cameras i'm curious and there certainly is that in drive to survive and i'm curious when you watch these guys like, how much do you see overlap with other reality shows as far as people playing to the cameras and knowing what to do? And I think Christian Horner is probably the best example of this, where it's like he almost has a Chris Jenner style of like knowing exactly like a little a little dig that's not going to be crazy. Like saying Total Wolf is the finance guy is probably a good example where it's like he probably thought about that six months earlier and wrote it down in his little notebook and was like, I'm going to say he's a finance guy and I'm more of a, a racing guy. Um, what how do you think that that? You know, we talk about so much about how much the sport has changed because of Drive to Survive. Um, but how have sort of the people changed when when Drive to Survive cameras are on them? You know, I I think that that Christian Horner is the best, and to me, almost only example of someone who is operating, <laughs> and 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 Toto Wolf to an extent of someone who yeah. is operating as a reality TV character. Like he is definitely planning what he says. He's allowing himself to be posed as the villain. And I think that he's yeah. doing that. And he's not completely a villain, but like anyone who watches Real Housewives know that villains are more, more of a protagonist to the season of television than just like a straightforward nice guy. So mm -hmm. like he is centering himself in the narrative and he has to, I think in some ways, because like Max isn't there. And if, if his team is going to have a story, then he is going to have to be the story. And I think that he is, is pretty successful in that, but he's the only one who really, I think bounces off the screen as someone who is like creating a character I think someone like George Russell is also really thoughtful yeah. about the kind of personality they're putting out there. He doesn't seem like someone who's going to like lose his cool or say something offhanded. And so then when he does, it's even more of a big deal. But for the most mm -hmm. part, these drivers, I always say that reality TV is like the sports of human behavior. So like instead <laughs> of watching peak physical performance, we're watching peak behavioral performance when we watch something like The Bachelor or The Real Housewives. And a lot of these drivers are shockingly forthcoming with like their real personalities yeah. and their real emotions. But, you know, there's always going to be some curation to that. Like I, I think... Botas was someone who I was not interested in at all in the first two seasons. And then in the second two seasons, he really lets you into like the emotional he got mad turmoil. Over Instagram. 
just mad That's relatable, <laughs> right? Like, that's relatable to me to, like, look at an Instagram comment and then just be, like, shelved for the day. Like, I, I yeah. this has ruined me. Um, and so I, I think that there's a certain amount of curation that he does to that, but he also lets you in. And so I think a lot of these guys have found that balance. And to me, that's a win-win. Like, I... I don't really understand Max's choice to accept that it's just on moral principle. I I think that you like, if everyone else is doing it, you can really only gain from putting your true personality out there and having control of your own narrative. Because like when Lewis Hamilton tells me that he's not someone who crashes, but Max is, I just have to believe him because that's what I'm being told. And I think I represent like a large part of this fandom. You know, we, I, I listen to the show and I follow F1 some, and I think like a big conversation is that is how does drive to survive lend itself both to like extreme fans of the sport and mid-level fans of the sport who have come to it through, through drive to survive. But I think there's also a large fraction that watch drive to survive and just like, aren't going to get really into Formula One and form their own opinions outside of it. And for those people, you know, we need to see some Max. What are your thoughts on the no more uh, chicane at turn nine in Australia? Well, I was a big fan of chicane. And so to see it go... The turn the turn nine, <laughs> turn nine is, you know, it's, it's just yeah, really going to turn Yeah, we all know turn nine. Notorious Famous. turn nine. I'm going to miss it. Jody Walker, thanks for coming on, buddy. <laughs> thanks, Kevin. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.